This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hall and Wilcox Private Client podcast series about succession challenges for blended families. My name's Laura Hanrahan, and I'm a special counsel in the Hall and Wilcox Private Clients team based in Brisbane. I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleague Janine Bond, who is also special counsel with the team. As I said, I'm based in Brisbane. I therefore acknowledge the Jagera and Turrbal people on whose land I am speaking to you from and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. I pay my respects to their elders past and present and also to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people joining us. And hello everyone, I'm Janine Bond. Um, and as I'm talking to you from Perth, I wish to acknowledge the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm speaking. I recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present and to all First Nations people who are joining us today. In today's episode, Janine and I will be discussing superannuation considerations for blended families. As separate topics, both superannuation and blended families pose many succession planning issues. But when you combine the two, further complexities arise and carefully considered strategies will be required to ensure that a person's wishes regarding their superannuation will be carried out after their death. So Janine, if we have a blended family, do we just deal with our superannuation in a client's will? Is that sufficient? Well, it, the, the short answer is no, um, and probably the long answer is no. <laughs> um, so first of all, you've got to work out where superannuation fits in at a person's wealth or estate or estate plan. So generally superannuation is not part of their estate. And the will, when you're preparing a will, your will is only going to be able to deal with estate assets. So assets that you own personally, like personally owned land, personally owned bank accounts, uh, personally owned shares. But if you've got those sorts of assets in a superannuation fund, say if it's a self-managed superannuation fund or it's a retail fund, your will's not going to automatically deal with those assets unless there's a direction um, or the trustee has arranged or is obliged to transfer those assets into your estate so that you will can deal with them. So um, it can be it can be a bit complicated. So Laura, if you will can't always deal with your super, um, what are some of the ways that you can make sure that your super is left to your partners or your children, your stepchildren or other people? There are a couple of different um, ways in which we can deal with a client's superannuation entitlements. And that will depend on whether they've got, as you mentioned, Janine, a self-managed fund or a retail or industry fund. As a member of a super fund, regardless of whether it's a self-managed fund or a retail or industry fund, members will have entitlements, subject to the terms of the trust deed, of course, to make what we call a death benefit nomination, if the client is in pension phase, then depending upon the terms of that pension, there can be a reversionary pension nominated. And 
the other way to deal with super with some certainty um, relates only to a self-managed fund. And that is if you're a director or you have some control of the trustee of the super fund, you can in that capacity make sure that the person you intended to benefit from the super fund has control of the super fund um, upon the death of the, of the member and trustee. It's also important if you're using um, any of the member control methods, death benefit nominations, reversionary pensions, that you're ensuring that the person that is nominated is eligible to receive the death benefit payment or super directly from the super fund. So there are different types of death benefit nominations. Janine, can you go through these for us? Yes, so the, the main different types of death benefit nominations that we see are you've got binding death benefit nominations where the trustee of the super fund is bound to follow the nomination. You have non-binding nominations where it's just an indication of what the member of the superannuation fund wants to have happen or who they want their superannuation death benefits to be paid to. Um, you have a lapsing nomination, which will generally, it's when we say lapsing, we mean lapsing after three years, because under the superannuation industry rules, um, the for retail funds especially, you can generally only have a three year lapsing, like the, the nomination will end after three years and to keep the nomination in place, you've got to do a new nomination um, or a non-lapsing nomination. You see those more often in self-managed super funds. Um, so with a non-lapsing nomination, with self-managed super funds, the trustee of the self-managed super fund has to permit the trustee to accept or the, the member to make a non-lapsing nomination. So it's, it's very important if you're wanting to make a death benefit nomination that you check very carefully either the trustee of your self-managed super fund or with the rules, if you've got a retail or industry fund, what sort of nomination is allowed? There's no point trying to put in a binding non-lapsing nomination um, for a self-managed super fund if the trustee doesn't allow that because it's not going to be valid and it, the effect will be that you don't have a nomination at all. Um, so you often see a often a non-lapsing binding nomination. So that means that the, the nomination won't lapse um, over a period of time unless it's changed or revoked down the track, um, but it's also binding on the trustee of the super fund so that the super death benefits have to be paid out to the person, either to the person who's an eligible superannuation death benefit beneficiary, or it can also go to the estate of the deceased person, if that's what the death benefit nomination says, and it's a valid um, nomination. So as you can see, it can get a little bit complicated. So it's a really good idea to get some good advice around these documents or, or death benefit nominations when you're wanting to put something in place or when you're doing your, your estate planning. So Laura, if there is no binding death benefit nomination, who's the person who decides who'll take the super death benefits or who decides who they get paid to? Yeah, that's a really good question, Janine. And it will depend on the 
trust deed of the particular fund, but in most cases, it will be the trustee of the super fund who has the discretion to pay a member's death benefit if there's no valid binding death benefit nomination. So as you've said, it's really important if certainty about who is being paid the death benefit is an integral part of a client's estate plan, then it's vitally important that we get those binding death benefit nominations correctly prepared and make sure that they're valid. Because ultimately, if if a binding death benefit nomination is not valid, then there's no certainty for that client that the superannuation will end up being paid to the intended beneficiary. And it may, in fact, particularly in a blended family situation, it may, in fact, increase the pool of assets, which ends up in the estate, which is then available if there is a family provision application. So it can really undo things very quickly, not having that binding nomination correctly prepared. It's also really important, there's lots of talk about you know, the increasing rate of dementia and people living longer. Um, and so it's really important that not only do we address a binding death benefit nomination as part of the um, overall plan, but we also need to think about what happens if a member loses capacity at any point. Is it intended that their attorney should be able to confirm or make a new binding death benefit nomination on their behalf? Or is it intended that they should only be able to confirm and certainly not revoke or make a new um, binding nomination? And then what, um, what conflicts of interest come out of that in terms of your attorney who might also be the beneficiary of the binding death benefit nomination. And so we need to carefully draft not only the binding death benefit nomination itself, but also any enduring power of attorney document. Janine, if someone has a blended family, how do you ensure that your super will go to the chosen members of your family after, after you die? How do you ensure that your super doesn't go to others that aren't intended? So the first thing is to go back to basics. Check the trustee if you've got a self-managed super fund and see what is permitted. Is there a binding death benefit nomination permitted under the rules of the super fund? Um, is it or is there a non, hopefully there's a non-lapsing nomination permitted? And then have a look at whether the people who you want to benefit are eligible beneficiaries under the superannuation rules um, and also check the trustee too because there's only certain people who you can direct um, payments from to be for people to receive payments directly from the self-managed super fund. Um, otherwise, if it's a person who you want to benefit and sometimes in blended families, um, they're not always, their stepchildren may or may not Usually they would be eligible beneficiaries under the superannuation rules, but sometimes there's other people who are treated as family members who are not eligible beneficiaries. And so the only way then you can get make sure that your super goes to them 
is to do it through your will. So it might be that you need to have a death benefit nomination directing some or all of your super death benefits to your estate because then your will can deal with um, the distribution of the super to those people. However, like Laura mentioned, if you've got the super in the estate, it can make the estate vulnerable to a Family Provision Act claim. That is, someone can make a claim, an eligible person might be able to make a claim against the estate for a share who you might not otherwise have wanted to provide for. So it's really important um, to make sure that, again, you get good advice, but you also make sure that you're having a really good look at the super fund rules or tr and trustee if it's self-managed super fund, um, but also look at who the, the people are that you want to benefit and what are the ways that you're going to have to, or what, what steps you're going to have to take to be able to get that super to that person without breaching the superannuation rules and to make sure it is going to happen um, in the best way possible. So, once we've sorted that out, I think there's some tax implications as well, aren't there, Laura? Yes, absolutely. And importantly, when members are making decisions about who their super is to be paid to on their death, it's important to understand that there will be different tax consequences depending upon the relationship of that beneficiary to the deceased member. So generally speaking, spouses, including de facto partners, will be paid superannuation death benefits tax-free and financially dependent children, that is children who are either under 18 or up to 25, provided they are still financially dependent on the deceased member, they will also be able to receive superannuation death benefit payments tax-free. If you have an adult or a non-financially dependent child or stepchild for that matter, then there will be tax to pay and people should get advice if they're concerned about, about the amount of that tax. Um, and ultimately, if you if a superannuation death benefit is paid to the estate, then depending upon where the super is ultimately paid, the beneficiaries in the estate, that will determine the tax treatment. It's also really important that um, people understand that life insurance in super will be taxed differently to um, accumulated amounts within, within super. So it could be that a death benefit payment to a non-dependent or adult child or stepchild will be taxed at as much as 30%. So it's quite, um, can be a quite significant tax. So given all of those complexities that, that we've been through, Janine, do you think it's a good idea to seek specialist advice regarding superannuation when you've got a blended family? I think it's the only way to go because we see the situations that can arise where people haven't had the right advice and trying to fix up those problems um, when there hasn't been legal advice, good financial advice, good accounting advice, good taxation advice. It's imperative, I think, that people, when it's just as part of doing their estate planning, 
looking at their, their superannuation, working out who they want their super to go to, they really need to get some good legal estate planning, financial accounting advice, um, really hone in on what they're trying to achieve with their succession planning. And especially so when there's a blended family, because there's a whole lot of other considerations um, to, to go through and make sure that you've covered you know, all the bases basically, so that the outcome is as the, as the person wants it to be. So yeah, short answer is yes, definitely. <laughs> thanks, Janine. And thanks everyone for listening today. Janine and Claire Hawke Gundel will be presenting our final episode on the effect of a new marriage, separation and divorce on succession planning. Please get in touch with us if you have any questions. You can find our details on our website, www.hallandwilcox.com.au or connect with us or Hall and Wilcox on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's episode, then rate, review or follow our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Mm -hmm.